Hey guys, Mike here. I just wanted to remind you that my new book, Fuel and Fire, is now out. Uh, it is packed with all sorts of useful training tips and my philosophies on how to get better at OCR racing. Uh, you can check it out at outskirtspress.com slash fuel and fire. I'll put a link in the show notes to this episode. You can also find it on Amazon. And when you buy the book, you get access to a ton of uh, my programs at a discount rate. Welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race. And hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mike Diegler. Welcome host, to the OCR SGS Underground coach, Show. This Mike is episode Diegler. number 79. If you want to check out the show notes for this episode, head on over to www.ocrunderground.com slash episode dash 79. Um, as always, I have a great episode for you today. I have some some good news, really. I feel like I've been slacking a little bit. You know, I started this podcast not just so I can share my my knowledge and my experience with with listeners out there, but really so I can get the input of other coaches out there. You know, so you don't get just one set of opinions. You can get um, you know a, a variety of of options because you know, like I've talked about on this show, there's no perfect formula there's no one method so i have a booked schedule of interviews that i have scheduled i have some that are recorded that i just need to get out so i'm hoping the good news is not only are you going to get some more great insight from other coaches out there on maximizing your training but it means i need to get some podcasts out so i'm hoping i can get these out faster and faster for you uh, to just get get this information out there because I have some some awesome interviews with some some great insight so I'm really excited to uh, let you guys know that hey more are coming um, just be patient but hopefully I can get these out much quicker than I have in the past um, in this episode I have a couple great topics that I want to talk about first is uh, avoiding back pain I just finished recording a two-hour webinar for exercise etc on um, for coaches dealing with clients who who suffer from back pain or help avoiding back pain altogether and I'm going to give you guys kind of a cliff's note we're just going to summarize it you can uh, check out the full webinar uh, if you are a coach you can get your CECs uh, through exercise etc.com I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check out that webinar, but I'll give you the highlights and the things really that I would want you to consider if maybe you've dealt with back pain in the past uh, or if it's just something you want to make sure you don't deal with in the future. So definitely check out some of my big tips there. Um, in my research review, I'm going to talk about the kettlebell swing. The kettlebell swing is probably an exercise that you are regularly doing. Uh, hopefully, it is an exercise you're regularly doing. There are a lot of great benefits from it, but I found a really interesting study on uh, the kettlebell swing and hormonal uh, release after the swing, after changing a few variables. So I thought that was a, an interesting topic there. And then finally, in uh, this week's uh, interview, I have on a return guest, I have uh, SGX level two coach, Gary Lombardo, who is uh, going to share some more of his great insight uh, going on kind of these ultra obstacle races. And we cover a lot of different topics, but he's currently preparing for the death race. So we talked a little bit about that, some of the things he's planning uh, to train for, and um, it is his first experience. So he's sharing some of the things that he's considering that I think is relevant for all sorts of different types of races, not just the uh, the death race. So great interview there from Coach Gary. Uh, but before we dive into it, I do want to let you know a little bit about the sponsors for this show. Uh, first up is Venga CBD. Venga CBD makes uh, really high quality CBD products. They are um, they're simple, but they are expanding their line to really cover all the areas that would be beneficial for looking at supplementing with CBD. Uh, they have a product for before training or before race with their, their energy drink. They have uh, in intra-race or intra-workout training with their CBD gummies. gummies. They have the uh, post-workout with their um, CBD gels and um, they have their balm to enhance with uh, muscle soreness and recovery. 
And then finally, their latest product is uh, Super Sleep, which I've been playing around with and it's been really effective, enhancing sleep, making it super easy to fall asleep, but probably the best part is not waking up super groggy and just feeling like you got a full night's sleep. So make sure you check out all their products. Head on over to vengacbd.com slash OCR underground uh, for all of the different bundles uh, that they do with, with all their products. And you can uh, use OCR underground uh, code and save uh, 15% off your first order. I also want to let you know about Fitbar. You can check them out at fitbarstrong.com. They have, uh, again, uh, a growing library of, of OCR and Ninja Warrior specific training products, uh, as well as other useful tools that could go in any home gym. Um, but I really love using a lot of their different grip training tools, the nunchucks, the balls, um, all the different options to just really train for, for different types of, of obstacles and different grip grip strategies. Um, but they also have some great products like their suspension trainer, squat racks, um, pulley systems, all, all these really cool things that you can are affordable, easy to put in your garage if you are building out your your own home gym. Uh, definitely check out their products at fitbarstrong.com. And again, you can use code OCR underground for 10% off. All right, the Inside Mike's Mind segment, I, like I mentioned, I want to talk about back pain. And back pain is one of those things, you've probably heard the statistics, you know, 80% of the population are suffering from some type of chronic low back pain. And, you know, then there's the 20% that lie about it. So it's, it's something that many people are, are dealing with. Um, when you look at the statistics, you know, healthcare costs related to back pain, um, the average, you know, cost from dealing with uh, back pain is going up. Um, the incidences are going up. It's lasting longer. Just it's not a good sign. And, and even though more money is being spent on dealing with low back pain, we're not seeing really any substantial improvements in treatment. And a lot of times it's because we're, we're looking at it the wrong way, right? We, we look at, hey, I hurt my back. I'm going to let it recover. I'll take some ibuprofen. Um, and then, you know, it, it feels a little bit better. And then I go right back to what I was doing. And then I hurt my back. And then we just we get in this cycle. Um, or we, you know, you know, the, the, the medical system isn't always properly prepared for dealing with a lot of this you know most back pain is is um uh <clears throat> coming from you know really unknown reasons because if we're just looking at simple mris not that mris are simple but just looking at kind of the most common ways we diagnose back pain it's not really telling us a whole lot of information you know there's studies out there that will show you can look at uh, people who are not in back pain take an mri and you're going to see some significant problems from disc bulges to disc ruptures to to broken you know stress fractures all these different things but they're not in pain so that it's hard to say what what was really going on there and then um you know so just relying on that one thing and even if the the pain is being caused by some of these things we're being diagnosed with what is it really telling us all it's telling us is there's some disorder in your back right so if you have a disc bulge you know, so the disc between the vertebrae is, is being pushed out and it's pinching on a nerve, you know, obviously that's going to cause some pain. So what's the answer, right? So a disc bulge doesn't tell you anything. It just tells you that there's a problem. What we need to figure out is why is the disc bulge in the there in the first place? Why is there some type of abnormality developing? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of looking the symptom versus the cause, right? So we, we realize that there is an issue going on with your spine. But we don't, the more important question is why has that developed in the first place? And that's really what we need to look at if we're trying to um, reduce the incidences of low back pain or, or get you back to, to training or whatever it might be. So we have to take a different approach to this. So there's kind of a, a five-step process that we want to make sure we're going through. And number one is you have to identify your painful postures so you might not be in pain right now maybe you are um, but either way you need to take a look at a few different things and see if they actually cause pain or if they don't or if they're uncomfortable or whatever it might be so when we look at the spine it needs to move 
right? It needs to flex, it needs to, to bend forward, uh, it needs to extend, bend backwards, it needs to laterally bend, so you can bend side to side, and it needs to rotate. Now, different parts of the spine are better designed for that type of movement, right? So if we look at, you know, the big areas, the cervical, or excuse me, the, the thoracic spine, these vertebrae were designed to move. So most of your spine movement's gonna occur from the thoracic spine, so we should be able to rotate all the things I just mentioned there. When you look at the lumbar spine, the lower back, where many people have issues, these are the biggest vertebrae. They're designed to, to uh, weight bear, right? So they can hold a lot of force, but they're not designed to move. And when we kind of flip that, when you see people you know, with poor posture, they get a stiff upper back in that thoracic spine, uh, other areas are gonna have to make up for it. So we might get some extra movement in the neck um, because the, the upper back's not moving, or we might get some extra movement in the lower back, in the lumbar spine that it wasn't designed to do. And now we have those disc bulge and other, other problems there. So we, we need the spine to move in. It should move pain-free. Now, you should flex, you should extend, not always under load, but just being able to do things like that. So if we look at the exercise like a cat-cow, when you're on all fours and you're going through full spine flexion and extension, that's unloaded. That's a, a pretty basic movement that your spine should be able to handle, yet we'll have people that will complain of pain when they go through that. So what we want to figure out is what are your pain triggers? What positions of the spine are going to set you off? Which ones may feel better, right? So a couple simple things you can do. You should flex your spine. So a simple way to do this, you can go into a child pose. I'll put some videos in the show notes so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. So child pose is, you know, very common yoga position and it's taking your spine through full flexion. So you're going to do that and just see, does that hurt? Does it feel better? You know, just kind of be mindful of it. Then you're going to go through extension. So we can do a press up exercise. So you're going to push your upper body off the ground while you leave your lower body laying down. And we're going to go through extension and see if, Hey, any pain when you do this, um, we can do compression. So if you sit like on a chair on a stool, and sit up with nice tall posture and then grab underneath the bottom of the seat and kind of pull down to create pressure on that spine at that compressive force. Again, does that cause any pain? Um, if it does, you can play around with your posture and see, well, if you sit up taller, maybe you're slouching. If you add a little bit of abdominal bracing, uh, does that seem to help, right? So you can start to figure out what feels good, what doesn't. And then if we just rotate, you know, we can sit with your arms crossed and you're just gonna rotate one way, rotate the other way. Do, again, do you feel any pain with this? So if you answered yes to any of those, where there was pain when you flexed, extend, rotated, added compression, we just found a pain trigger. So what we want to do is avoid those movements or avoid anything that will even threaten getting close to those movements. Um, this may be permanent, this might be temporary, but we want a buffer zone because most people treat injury um, like picking a scab. Right, so if you have a cut on your arm and you know it starts to scab over, it's starting to heal, and you just keep rubbing it over, and every time that scab starts to develop, you just keep rubbing it, you keep rubbing it, right? You're gonna have a problem. It's gonna take a really long time for that cut to heal itself. Right? Our body is an incredible thing and it can do amazing things to heal ourselves if we give it the right environment. But when you're constantly putting yourself in a position that causes more pain you're picking that scab over and over again. So this is an important concept that we have to understand. You're gonna um, confirm what movements cause issues for you. So let's just say, for example, um, a, a flexed posture. So you go into that child pose and you notice that that seems to irritate your back. So there's a lots of reasons why something like that might cause pain. And obviously, you know, I should have started with all of this. If you haven't talked to anybody like a physical therapist, um, to help you work with this, that should be the first place that, that you go, right? To have somebody give you a, a solid diagnosis so we know what we're dealing with, because it could be a lot of things. Um, you know, we're often, we go straight to the disc issues, the back issues, the muscle sprains, things like that. But, you know, there's other bigger reasons, um, more serious reasons why you might have lower back pain, like, like cancer and infections. And not to scare people, but just realize that those can be issues as well. So we just want to make sure, hey, just rule out the big things and get an understanding of what's going on so we can work with it. Okay, so going back to our example, let's say flexion caused issues. So what you now know is anytime you go into a flex spine posture where you're rounded, 
uh, your back's not going to like it. That's picking the scab. So we need to avoid movements that'll flex the spine. So, you know, sit-ups and crunches and, and you know, kind of traditional abdominal exercises are going to fall in that category. Uh, some other things, deadlifting may, because if you're lifting with a flexed spine, so we might, you know, we're going to talk about improving movement patterns later, but I'd probably rule it, get rid of deadlifts for right now because there's a good chance that you will go into flexion um, unless you have somebody working with you on this. So take out something like that. Seated exercises might be an issue. Going on a leg press, uh, that basically just forces you into a flex spine and then loads you and compresses the spine. So that's probably not a good option. Let's rule that out. Most seated exercises might be an issue because if you think about what a common seated posture looks like, you tend to get pushed into that flexed posture where you're rounding your back. So I'm not saying you can't do seated exercises, but you just need to be mindful because most people, when they sit down, they flex their lumbar spine, right? And then if you load it and start doing bicep curls and overhead presses, that might irritate the problem further. Okay, so that's just one example. Um, you know, extension, we need to uh, be mindful of things like planks and push-ups, uh, overhead pressing, standing exercises, things where you may go into spine extension. Um, these are all going to be high-risk areas for you. So, um, you know, obviously there's more. Um, I'll put a few videos so you can kind of see what I'm talking about with some of these positions. But if nothing else, as you're doing certain movements, you have to eliminate those pain triggers. So, um, and then start to avoid or eliminate exercises that put you in a high-risk position. So that's, that's kind of the first step there. Uh, the second step is start finding postures that don't hurt, right? That you feel good in. So you need to play around again. So somebody that is experiencing issues with flexion may get some benefit from extension. And this is why we can't use, you know, a cookie cutter program because one exercise may be great for one person and terrible for another, right? So if I am suffering maybe from a disc bulge and extension seems to be causing relief, you know, going into a press-up position potentially could be a good exercise for you. But if you have an issue like spondylolisthesis, which is saying there's a slippage of one vertebrae over the other, that's actually going to be made significantly worse going into extension. So we just want to keep that in mind. So you're going to start playing around and see what postures and positions feel better. Do you feel better when you lay down? Do you feel better when you're standing? Can you go through some pelvic tilts, right? A lot of people are stuck in an anterior pelvic tilt where their hips kind of tilt forward and they increase the extension in their lumbar spine. So if they kind of work on getting into more of a neutral position by posteriorly pelvic tilting, that might provide more relief. You might find that doing exercises half kneeling feel pretty good or tall kneeling. Um, so these are all things you're going to have to start to play around with. So we, we stop picking the scab, right? We avoid the injury, the, the positions that don't feel good. And let's find more positions where they do feel good, right? Where I'm pain free. That's going to help that scab grow faster, right? So we can, we can heal. Um, once you find those pain free postures, now let's do most of our exercises in those positions as best we can. Now, um, I kind of touched on real briefly the next point, right? So we, we're avoiding pain, we're finding non-pain positions. Now we need to work on neutral spine and improve stability, uh, specifically trying to improve endurance. So neutral spine means different things for different people. We're not flexed, we're not extended, we're kind of in the middle. So I'll put again a, a video in the show notes so you can see what I'm talking about. But an easy example would be you go on all fours, and if you're familiar with cat-cow, it's basically a cat-cow exercise. Uh, what you're going to do here is you're going to posteriorly pelvic tilt, which means you're kind of you're going to tuck your pelvis under, so it's actually flexing your spine. So you're kind of rounding your back. So you're going to do that as far as you can. Then you're going to anteriorly pelvic tilt. So now you're going to arch your back and kind of stick your butt out. Then you're going to stop somewhere in the middle. So you went through full flexion, full extension, stop in the middle. That's probably a good starting point for you for neutral. So this is a good drill to do before you do any of your core exercises. So if I'm gonna do a plank, do a few pelvic tilts, find neutral, so now you understand what that feels like, then you're going to um, work on your plank or whatever exercise it might be in that position. 
And this, this is really the basis behind what core training is. You're going to get your spine in a good position and then you challenge it in different manners. So using gravity, using weight, positions, whatever it might be. So this is essentially where core training starts. You have to understand what neutral is and then we're going to challenge that and then we're going to build endurance off of that because that's kind of the idea here. You know, strength, power, all of these are important, but a lot of times we can't handle being under load for prolonged periods of time or being in different positions for prolonged periods of time. So that I think the first step is to build some solid endurance in the muscles surrounding the hips and the, and the spine. So, um, I think, you know, obviously there's a million different exercises you can do, but think planks, side planks, exercises like bird dogs. Again, I'll put videos of all these, um, in the show notes. And I know these aren't exciting, but when you do them properly, they do feel differently. They are going to make a bigger difference. So um, once you've developed that foundation, then you can build off and, and come up with a million different progressions off of them. But remember the idea, like the bird dog is one that most people just absolutely butcher. They just think it's raise your opposite arm and leg. And they don't realize the whole point of that exercise is to move the arm and leg, like when you walk, like when you run, but you do it without affecting the spine. And most people can't do that. As soon as they lift the leg, they just go right into a, a back extension. Um, so you're just telling yourself, your body's saying, you know, every time I extend my hip, I'm just going to extend my back because that's easier. So hopefully that gives you a different way to look at how you're, you're really training your core there. Now, as we're improving that core strength and endurance, we need to make sure we are learning how to move better, right? There's a reason that we've probably lost some of that stability of the, the lower back and the lumbar spine and the core because our hips and our shoulders and, and T-spine and, and all that good stuff aren't moving very well, right? So we have the lumbar spine, which is sandwiched between the thoracic spine and the hips, you know, two very mobile joints and one not so mobile. So if they're limited in mobility, your lumbar spine typically will make up the difference and pay for it. So while building this in endurance and this core stability is going to be crucial, we have to make sure that we are establishing better movement. So here's where we work on improving, uh, you know, T-spine extension and rotation, getting the ribs to move better, you know, moving the hips more, getting better hip flexion, extension, rotation, right? So just, you know, get that mobility work in there, hit the foam roller, um, hit your, your different types of, of mobility exercises, um, so now we, we can not just keep running into the same problem where even though our core is getting maybe more stronger and stable, but we're forcing it to move when other pieces aren't moving and doing what they're supposed to. So make sure we improve that, that mobility where we need mobility. And again, I'll put a few exercises in the show notes so you can see what I mean by thoracic mobility and, and hip mobility there. Uh, then from there, we want to make sure we're improving movement patterns. And this is essentially just a step further than core training, because now we're getting into our bigger movements, our squats, our lifts, our, you know, our hip hinges, our, our single leg work, pushing and pulling. Now, once we've built all of these pieces, we want to make sure we're not just falling apart when we're under load and when we're requiring bigger movements. So this, you know, it takes a trained eye. It's, it's going to be helpful to have somebody watch you, but if, if you can videotape yourself and see when you perform a hip hinge, when you do a deadlift, what happens at your spine, right? There shouldn't be any movement, but is there? So you might need to learn some different stabilizing strategies in order to stabilize better so you can actually use the hips to lift or squat or whatever it might be. You know, don't forget our first rule, we have to avoid pain. So if any of these movements are causing pain, that might be a problem. But sometimes the easy answer is you're just trying to take on too much and stick with pain-free. And if you can remember that rule, I think it's gonna be really helpful. So this might mean you don't squat a full depth squat. Sure, it's great if you can do a full depth squat and you can get below parallel and your butt to the floor and you can you know, do it under load, that's, that's great. Most people can't do that. So you have to realize that you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be in that position, but maybe you can do a half a squat or a quarter of a squat, right? Stick where you're gonna get stronger, you're gonna stay pain-free and just limit. And that's, you know, box squats are a great example where we're just trying to be consistent with what range of motion we're doing. You know, we can do deadlifts. They don't have to be from the floor. You can put a kettlebell up on a step and just do, again, like a half of a repetition of a deadlift. Great way to work on your hip hinge and still get it strong without going to some of those end ranges where you have a hard time controlling. Uh, obviously, we want to get to the point where we get to those full ranges, but right now, maybe you're not at that point, right? So, 
don't force things to happen. You can still do a lot. You just have to modify and, and understand what your limitations are. So I know I threw a lot of information at you here, but hopefully it's making sense. But you know, this is a complex situation. It's, it's not an easy fix. If you think you're just gonna you know, get one treatment and have no more pain and, and be good to go, you're mistaken. It's gonna take time and, and work to, to fix some of these problems. So just kind of remember those steps, identify what is painful and what is high risk for you and remove that. Find what positions and postures make you feel better and incorporate more of those. Make sure you understand what neutral means and improve core stability there. Improve that hip and T-spine mobility. And then finally, we wanna improve those movement patterns. And if you can put all that together, you're gonna to be much, mess, much less likely to suffer from uh, chronic issues and, and hopefully just avoid them altogether in the future. All right, now that you applied all the things that we just talked about and you're moving pretty well, uh, hopefully you can handle some higher level exercises like something like a kettlebell swing. And in this episode's research review, I'm gonna talk about study, a study looking specifically at the kettlebell swing and looking at loading to measure different hormonal responses. So this came out of the journal Strength and Conditioning Research. And uh, what they did here, it was a small study. They had 10 subjects and they performed two different trials using the kettlebell swing. Now these were trained subjects, so that meaning they have experience lifting and have been exercising for a while. And the two protocols that they went through, it was a kettlebell swing workout. So that was the only exercise they did. And they perform intervals with the kettlebell swing. So they would do 30 seconds on, 30 seconds recovery. They would do this two separate occasions, once using a uh, eight kilogram kettlebell, so about 18 pounds. And the second time they did a 16 kilogram kettlebell or about 35 pounds. So they continued this protocol for 12 minutes, just going 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. Now they did want to match volume and workload. So they uh, kept the cadence the same so they could perform the same number of repetitions um, for each, each different set. So to, to keep this as consistent as possible there. And uh, what they did was they compared rating of perceived exertion. So basically after every set, how, you know, scale of these, the Borg scale of uh, six to 20, how uh, hard they felt like they were working, they measured heart rate, and then they looked at testosterone and cortisol levels before, immediately after, and then a little while after they finished the workout. And I don't think any surprises here, what they found was basically the 16 kettle, uh, 16 kilogram kettlebell group, that session uh, resulted in higher everything, basically. So they saw higher perceived exertion. So obviously you're lifting a heavier load, you're going to feel like it's harder. Uh, heart rate went up uh, more significantly in the uh, heavier group. And then they saw both testosterone and cortisol levels significantly increase compared to their baseline before they worked out. Uh, not just immediately after, but uh, particularly with the testosterone levels, they saw it increase um, well after they had completed the session. So um, I, no surprises. I, I think it's a pretty straightforward study, but I, I thought it was a good kind of excuse to bring up the point of you know loading matters and making sure that we're paying attention to how much we're stressing the body. Because the, you know, testosterone going up is, you know, whether you're male or female, this is an important thing, important hormonal response to exercise that, you know, at a minimum, we're trying to maintain our muscle mass, but hopefully we're, we're actually, you know, growing a little bit. So we, we need that testosterone levels to go up. You know, cortisol gets kind of that bad rap. You know, we hear about increased cortisol levels and, you know, belly fat and things like that. But that's, in a very particular situation where you have chronic elevated cortisol levels. But cortisol is a stress hormone. It's something that our body will release when we're subject to stress. So if you're stressed all the time and you're, you're working out like crazy, then obviously you're gonna have chronically high cortisol levels and that leads to its own issues. But in normal, normal circumstances, cortisol levels are at a normal level and then you stress yourself with something like exercise and we see them increase and it it actually helps increase fat utilization and energy production and and other things there so uh so it is it's not a bad thing it's a good thing that we see cortisol levels go up 
we just want to make sure that they go back down once you've stopped exercising and recovered properly. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that up so we know that it's, it's a good thing that cortisol levels go up um, as long as we're keeping that in check there. So what we can take from this study is just keep, keep this in mind that just going through the motion, just doing a workout to do a workout is going to have limited benefits. Now, there's some days where maybe you're just not feeling it and you just kind of want to get a sweat going and and that's great, right? You're just trying to keep stay consistent and keep moving. But, you know, if we're trying to see progress, we have to think about loading as one of our variables. It's not the only variable, right? There's many things that we can adjust to make something easier or harder, but load is often kind of one of the more easier ones that we can adjust. So we should be using obviously appropriate loading. We're not doing something that we can't handle. You know, when, you know, if we were looking at this, this kettlebell workout, you know, 12 minutes is a long time. I want to make sure that my, my first rep and my last rep are, are looking pretty much identical, right? That they're not, they're not getting sloppy. So we can handle that amount of load. Now a workout like this, and I think kettlebell workouts in general are unique because we, we kind of get this blend of metabolic training, kind of that conditioning aspect and strength, and we can get it at the same time, which is, you know, one of the unique things, not just kettlebells, but I, I do think that you can go through a lot of great kettlebell workouts that, that do kind of give you this blend. Uh, so that's, that's great. And it's a great way to utilize this tool, but we just need to remember that, uh, if we're doing metabolic training using anything, you know, not just a, a kettlebell, but if we're kind of going for those, you know, higher intensity workouts, we're really trying to, to push it. It's not just about, getting that heart rate up. It's, it's not just about being tired. There has to be a, you know, significant stress to the body and loading is a great way to, to do that, utilize that. So it's important to, you know, think about that as you're designing your workouts, if you're just, you know, doing this crazy circuit and you're just so tired, you can't really lift a significant load. I think you're missing out on a lot of that style of training. Right. If, if we're really going to get this metabolic resistance training down, we have to understand I need that combination. I need heavy loading or heavy stress and and I need kind of a faster pace right? to to get that conditioning aspect to it. So whether you're using kettlebells or sandbags or dumbbells or whatever it might be, I want you to keep this in mind that we need that balance. And oftentimes what that means is you need to allow for a little bit of recovery. You know, sometimes we feel like we the goal is to just get through a workout as fast as possible. You know, sometimes that is the goal and, and that's what we're trying to do. But I think if that's the only style of metabolic training you're doing where it's just constantly moving and not stopping, you're going to be very limited to the benefits you see from that style of training, right? So throw that in there every once in a while. But I think a lot of your, your metabolic resistance training needs to have that rest built in there. And I know sometimes when I'm working with a client, they're surprised when I say, hey, I, I need you to rest 30 seconds after every exercise. It's not boom, 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 move one to the other. It's you you hit it hard for 30 seconds and then you're gonna recover for 30 seconds or 45 seconds or a minute, whatever it might be. You know, everybody's gonna be able to recover you know, at different rates. So we take that into account, but keep that in mind. So when you're going through this, this type of training, you know, are you resting at all? Right. If not, I think you should evaluate your program a little bit. And now if you're like, well, that's too easy if I rest in between, well, then I'll come back and say you're probably not lifting heavy enough or going hard enough in your work period. So and that's these, you know, what essentially what interval training needs to be. It needs to be a period of hard training followed by a period of recovery. Now, whether you're running hill sprints or metabolic resistance training, there's a lot of different ways that we can implement it. But I think this is, um, this is something that's missing in a lot of people's programs. They're, they're trying to, you know, just crush a workout and go through with no really planned recovery, just, you know, you, you take a few breaths, and then you go, but we need to have a little bit more recovery, if we're going to be lifting heavier loads, at the same time, it's it, we can't just go super heavy into super heavy into super heavy, you're just asking for problems to develop when you do something like that. So we can go heavy, we stress the body, you recover, you know, it doesn't have to be 100% full recovery, because remember, the goal is not just strength, right? If the goal is just strength, you have the luxury of resting 
three to five minutes in between a set of something. But here we're, again, we're trying to do that blend of strength and uh, metabolic training. So we need some recovery, not necessarily complete, um, but enough to allow you to hit the next set uh, at a hard enough level. So again, a pretty straightforward study, but I just thought again, it re reiterates this point that not all training is the same if you're not considering your load, if you're not resting, you know, if we're, if we're going for that metabolic response, we need to have that balance there. So think about when you're doing these style of workouts, are you really considering rest at all? Are you considering load? Do you have kind of that right balance there? And start to play around with it. You know, you might need, if you go 30 seconds hard on kettlebell swings or some other type of lift, can you recover in 30 seconds and do it again? Or, you know, move right into another lift? Or maybe you need 45 seconds, maybe you need a minute, maybe you're good with 20 seconds, right? But you have to be honest that each work about you're putting in the same effort right we don't want to see that decrease in power or strength or whatever we might be going for with that that particular exercise so uh try that see how that works and, and see what kind of response you get from those those types of workouts All right, well, it is time for our interview section of the podcast. And as always, I have a great guest for you. Today, I have uh, Coach Gary Lombardo. Gary is, he's an accomplished athlete, but he's also a great coach. He's a Spartan SGX level one uh, and level two. He is USA triathlon coach, uh, CrossFit level two coach. He's, uh, and as well as a CrossFit endurance, CrossFit endurance coach and the owner of CrossFit High Power in Massachusetts. Uh, he competes in both long distance and short distance endurance events, including uh, three Ironman triathlons, four ultra distance OCR races, and then a number of marathons, long distance swims, long distance bikes and uh, bike rides, and has qualified for OCO, OCR Worlds from 2015 to 2019. So pretty long list of accomplishments there, there uh, Coach Gary. How you doing? Good, good. How you doing, Mike? Thanks for having me. Uh, great. I'm doing awesome, and I'm super excited to uh, to chat. And I, I we actually talked uh, a few years ago, uh, so it's it's great to have you back on and, and talking a little bit more about some uh, some training strategies. Absolutely. It's good to be back too. And I'm a big fan of your podcast. So thanks a lot for all you do for the sport. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. So uh, I wanted to kind of just start with a little bit of an intro. Uh, it's been a while since we have you had you on here just to kind of tell people a little bit about who you are and, and kind of how you fell into, you know, I guess just OCR in general. Yeah, for sure. And I think last time I was on, we kind of covered the the uh, sort of the ultra uh, evolution into the ultra area of, of sort of race distance and talked about some tips and tricks there. So yeah, this is, you know, I, I think I mentioned during that podcast as well, but just uh, that my journey uh, in the sport started, you know, many years ago, I kind of grew up in the, in the world of triathlon and, and kind of got bored with that sport. I still, still compete and I still do do biking and running and swimming and all that stuff. But really for me, OCR is really, brings it all together, uh, sort of the, the physicalness that you get from that, that sport, the mental grit that, that you really need and the challenge and being outside and, and doing it with uh, a great community around you. So um, that, that was really my journey into OCR. I was looking for, for new challenges and pushing new boundaries uh, for myself. And, uh, and then I sort of, you know, up the ante over the years as well and pushing myself into uh, longer and longer distances and newer and newer challenges. So my, my evolution has been a, I guess, not, not a, a typical one, just one that's been more like, how do I push the envelope a little bit more every year? And uh, it's been over the course of several years and the athletes I work with, I sort of frame up a, a similar uh, type of training philosophy for them and try to always push them uh, to think similarly. Cause I always think it's important to, to kind of, um, you know, push your boundaries and always be thinking about, uh, things that you don't think are possible and how you can make them possible. So that's, that tends to be how I, I view my training and how I've gotten to where I am today. So, yeah. And I, I you know, that's a great point that you bring up. And I think we're all, uh, you know, we, a, a lot of us follow that path of you kind of not sure what you can do and you, you, you dip your toes in the water and you, you like it. And, you know, you build from there. Cause I remember, you know, when I first ran my first 5k, I'm like, this is terrible. I never want to do this again. And then five, eight, five Ks became easy and easier and not, not a big deal. And then, you know, you try a, an OCR, a, you know, a short distance and it's, 
not so bad after the first couple. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's like, do I want to do an ultra? Do I, do I want to do a 24 hour race, whatever it might be. And it's, it's just kind of interesting how that, how that just happens where you just, you never would have thought you would have hit something, but if you, you know, just take these little bites, it's really, doesn't seem like a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's constantly challenging yourself and constantly learning. Like I think the learning piece is, is super critical for the sport, for OCR, uh, for any sport, any discipline that you're in, um, you know, learning about yourself, learning about, um, new ways to, uh, approach the physical challenges and the mental challenges. Cause OCR for, for, for me, and I know most athletes is, uh, you know, a huge portion of it is, is mental, uh, really kind of battling through and, and, uh, you know, getting to the, uh, the dark space that we all get to <laughs> during those races <laughs> and figuring out how do I, how do I react in those situations? Right. And learn something about yourself and then, um, you know, apply it to real life, to apply it to, to your, to races, of course, which you learn, but it's, it's also a direct application to real life. And I think that, that, that line that you can connect from OCR to real life is stronger than other sports, meaning that there are obstacles that we all have to overcome in life. And, um, you know, and obviously in, in obstacle course racing, there are physical obstacles and there are mental ones along the way. And it's kind of a microcosm of life. Uh, and we're all dealing with different, different personal situations, whether it's loss of loved ones, loss of a job, you know, different challenges. And, you know, you got to be physically and mental tough to mentally tough to take those things on. So I think it's, a, it, to me, it's a, it's a huge learning opportunity as a, as a person. Uh, and that's really what OCR is all about. So, so yeah. Big- Absolutely. And, you know, and part of the reason I do this podcast is not just to hopefully, you know, help others with learning, but expand you know, my knowledge as well. And, and one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you is you, you're coaching a lot of these athletes, but you've also gone through, um, many of these different races. And, um, I I just think that's a great combo that you've experienced this, you've helped others go through it. So you have different perspectives and in particular, you know, some of these longer endurance races that are becoming more and more popular. So I just always, you know, love learning, and, you know, in, in the process, helping our listeners learn more about all these different, you know, whether it's considerations, strategies, whatever it might be. And uh, with that being said, you, you have the death race coming up. So I, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So is, um, is this going to be your first death race? It is. It is my first death race. Awesome. So how excited are you about it? Uh, I'm very excited. I'm, I'm, uh, eagerly chomping at the bit. I'm sure the folks that, uh, the, the, the new race director, Andy and several, several others that, that are out there are, uh, excited to hear that from me and other, other first timers. So <laughs> absolutely. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I have to ask, so why do you want to run a death race? What, what sparked that for you? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting chat. It's an interesting question. Uh, it's, it's a great question as well. I think it's one that we all have to answer, right? Why do you want to do these type of things? And did that race in particular, because it's such a unique race. Um, and that's one of the reasons it's a unique challenge. It's the hardest race in the world. Uh, Joe DeSena has, has, uh, ensured that it has been and will remain that way. And so I, number one, I want to be able to experience that and participate in it and, and circling right back to why I do these things to begin with is pushing my boundaries, pushing my level of, uh, outside my comfort zone. Right. And this is square outside of that. I've been thinking about it for a long time and I'm always like, man, I just don't know, you know, do I have it in me? Right. And I think this is probably a common answer. It's, it's, it's I know we're all sort of, we were issued the challenge to go off and explain why the death race and I'm sure, um, you know, we're seeing similar answers, but it's all about, um, you know, growing as a person and understanding, can you do this big, scary thing that you didn't think you could do? So that's what this is about for me. It's about that continued journey and it's the next, next logical step. It's the same. I felt the same way about my first Spartan ultra, my first Ironman, my first expedition overseas and at high altitude. I'm always like, can I do those things? And then I go off and do it and you build you take those learnings and you kind of apply them to your life and then think about the next big thing. So this one's different in a lot of respects than all those other ones. I just mentioned the fact that it's the death race. It's a multi-day, um, uh, multi-hour, multi-day affair. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, much different than, than those, those other things. So this is definitely one that, um, I'm, I'm eager to do and, and, um, really to kind of see, see what, what do I have in me? 
right? So that's what it's about. So what did it feel like when you, you know, you hit that button that, you know, everything submitted and you register? Is it relief? Is it excitement? Is it fear, uh, regret? You know, is it, what, what's that feel like? A little bit of everything? Yeah, a little bit of everything, I got to say, is probably more of like, man, did I really just want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was this level of questioning. Uh, I'll, I will admit that. And, and I think, you know, the, the race organizers know that we just got an email the other day saying you, you can quit now, right? We encourage you to quit. Like, it's all about that. So there's a lot of mind games, of course, that's being played. And so, and, and there's a purpose though for that, right? Cause they really want people to think about this and think hard, uh, and, and to make sure they're, they're, is, it makes sense for them. So, and, and I have thought hard about that and it does make sense for me and I am very excited about it. So yeah, there was fear, but there's also excitement and, uh, a, a huge level of uh, anticipation and, and uh, also, you know, it's a goal. It's one that I need to prepare for like any other goal and, and uh, really use that to fuel my, my preparedness. So that's, that's uh, when I hit that button, all those sort of feelings were, were at play. And now it's about making sure I'm ready for that and that awesome. I uh, don't quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that's for a lot of things. There's, it's, it's, it's a good thing when you're a little bit anxious, when you're a little bit scared, because it means you care about it, right? Like if this is something that's important to you, if you were to hit submit and just be like, eh, like one, you're just maybe not really understanding what you're getting into and taking it seriously, but it's something that you are going to pay attention to. You are going to, you know, now that you're signed up now, the important piece is how do I prepare for this and, and get ready to go? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned you're already getting emails about quitting. Uh, so we know that's kind of what they're trying to do in a sense is, you know, find ways to get you quit. So I have to ask, is there something that would make you quit this race? Uh, once we start, if there's some, what's, is there something that'll make me quit the race? Um, I, you know, I really think that of course, you know, barring any, any sort of, you know, injury, uh, which I, I don't anticipate getting some, I'm pretty careful athlete. Uh, and they, I know they put on a safe race. Um, the thing that I probably, um, most worry about, I'd love to say, no, there's nothing that would make me quit, but the, <laughs> the thing that potentially would, and I've experienced this in past races is really the, the, the sleep deprivation is probably a good thing. I know it's kind of a weird answer, but like, there's just a lot in any of us, any of you who have may, maybe have experienced that is just, um, a lot of weird things that happen right in the mind and it, it does impact the, the physical body as well. So I think, um, if I reached a point of, you know, where I couldn't discern reality from, uh, non-reality and I felt I was putting myself in unsafe situations, uh, that is probably the only thing that I think would, would make me quit. Yeah. I, I mean, fair enough. Like obviously nobody goes into anything, at least I hope with the idea that they're going to quit, but it's probably important to have some metric in place where it's like, if I'm going to do myself harm, I have to be okay with saying, you know, enough is enough and, and deal with that. And that, that's, you know, that's just how it goes. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, um, I want to talk about your, your preparation, obviously. So this is a big deal. And if there's any other listeners that are even considering this or, um, you know, or, or signed up and, and are just looking for any helpful tips, like obviously a lot has to go into planning for something like this, but what's kind of going through your head? What are, you know, just if we, you know, paint a broad picture, all the things that you're at least considering, I need to be sure I'm ready for in order to take something like this on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I'm not worried about the physical preparation. So I, I'm, um, I, I, honestly, this is an extension of, um, sort of my, my normal training. And I know I, I maybe I don't train like a, a quote unquote, you know, average person, but I, this, I, I keep myself and I do enough physical training to be prepared for any alt Spartan ultra normally. And so this is a, certainly an extension of that. Um, so I'm not worried about that piece. I continue to do lots of, um, you know, trail running and lots of, uh, high intensity workouts at, at both in my CrossFit gym and, and, uh, I mix it up. I vary it up with biking and swimming to kind of stay healthy, uh, and cross train lots of high volume activity and high intensities so as a healthy mix across the board there. I am doing more long distance type stuff. So multi-hour, um, I'm, I plan on running a presidential traverse, which, uh, back here in, in 
eastern part of the U.S. and the White Mountains in New Hampshire is a uh, you know it's kind of a, a well-known type of uh, thing to uh, accomplish, right? You're going up several thousand feet of elevation over many hours, right across a mountain range, and uh, so that's something special I'm doing and, and prep for this. Um, and then I am trying, I am doing some uh, mental uh, challenges, I guess is a good good way to put it. Trying to um, keep myself uh, you know, um, up for longer than I normally would, right. Like overnight and kind of to work on that sleep deprivation piece. Uh, I've been doing lots of fasting as well. Um, not that I, you know, not that we can't eat during the race, but I do think, uh, teaching my body how to not necessarily have to rely on, on, um, you know, being constantly fed is part of the event. And I, I do think that's a healthy protocol for most people anyway, uh, to conduct fast, but doing it on, when your body's under fatigue is a whole nother level. Um, so I'm doing, um, 48 hour fasts and, and which is something I normally would do, like I said, but adding some stress levels to it as well. The thing I'm probably that's outside of my, my forte, which I'm, I'm trying to, um, <laughs> prepare for is more the gear, right? Like, what do I need to bring? What do I, cause it's not your traditional obstacle course race, right? So they do, um, you know, kind of make it hard for you not necessarily telling you everything, but now, you know, I'm hearing there's going to be a gear list. So there's a lot of guesswork. So I'm trying to talk to different people who've done the event in the past and make sure that I've got what I need. Uh, footwear is a big concern, right? Especially when it's a, it's a multi-day event. Uh, how does that work? So it's gear and logistics, to be honest, are the things that are, um, are most mysterious to me, but otherwise, you know, I do a lot of recovery protocols I have mixed into my normal training, which I think will keep my body healthy and be, be best prepared for this. And I'm sort of amping some of those up, whether it be, you know, a lot of the cold Genesis type practices that I do in cold water, um, all the way through some supplementations that I'm taking. So making sure that I'm, I'm well balanced is, is, uh, is really what this is about for me. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. And I, I like, I like the idea that you brought up, you know, obviously there's the physical portion, but most people are probably already doing a decent amount of training and, and sure you need to expand upon it and make sure you're ready for that, uh, those hours out there and, and all of that. But I like that you're bringing up the pieces that maybe not everybody's going to consider that really need a lot of focus. It's not just push as hard as you can, like you're going through a workout because there's all these other, um, variables that you're going to have to pay attention to. And I, you know, like, like you said, when I brought up quitting, I, I think that's a good question to ask, you know, for any kind of race, like what would make, what would prevent you from finishing this race? And it kind of starts to lay out your, um, your training plan a little bit, right? If it's, you know, obviously not everything can you train for like staying up for however many days straight, but you can at least incorporate some things that maybe test yourself a little bit so you can better prepare for it. Yeah, absolutely. The variability is important. I think, uh, for, for any athlete, you know, if you, you end up doing the same things over and over, uh, you, you know, your body, body adjusts, but the body also reacts well to variability and trying different and new things. And I think that the death race pushes you in that direction where you're going to have to, uh, in order to get through a race like this, try some new, new and different things. So that's what this is, has, um, really been about. And, you know, and, and anybody who's done, uh, some of the, you know, whether it's a, um, hurricane heat, you know, 12 hour, 24 hour, you maybe you've done a go ruck. Uh, they're not, they're not similar to the traditional Spartan obstacle course race. It's a different type of event, right? So yeah, do you, do you need to have strong grip strength and be strong and, uh, have the endurance and, and other, other skills that are needed? Uh, sure. But it's a different, um, it's a different type of, of a race where you're doing much more, uh, team-based work as well as individual challenges and you're, you're being mentally challenged in new ways. So, um, so sure there's different ways you can vary up your training to prepare for that, but there's only so many practical things that you can do, especially for something like the death race. You're not going to go out and stay awake for five days, right? Like they may expect <laughs> you to do in the death race during training, yeah. but you can certainly sim do some things to simulate, um, what it's like right, uh, to be putting your body under sort of that type of duress. And that's, that's how I, I am uh, approaching my training. And I do this stuff too, you know, for, for my own athletes that I work with, um, you know, cause I, I ask them to do some pretty crazy stuff and it's not fair for me to ask them to do some crazy stuff unless I've done it. So for me, this is a huge learning opportunity to, uh, to really experiment biohack and, and, and on different things that I normally wouldn't. And so that I can become a better coach and a, a better athlete, better coach uh, for the athletes I'm working with. So people can be fitter and stronger, which is ultimately what I'm passionate about. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, you, you brought up the gear and I'm just curious, cause again, this is something out definitely outside of my, um, my area. And I'm just, I, I know you said there's a lot of guesswork, but I'm just kind of curious what, you know, what are you planning on, on having to bring and, and, you know, at least being prepared to, to have to have there? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I'm, uh, so they did say in the last email, they're going to send a gear list. So I'm hopeful it's not going to be like gear list. It's my mind mess. How do, how do we say it in a nice way? Mind, uh, messing around <laughs> this, right. Where they're like, we're going to send you a gear list, but then they don't like, they're gonna be yeah. like go ask, which I suspect may be the case. So I honestly, I don't know. There's always, if any, if you've done a Spartan hurricane, he, you've gotten a gear list, right. And it's included mm -hmm. just odd objects, right. Like, yeah. like bring a block of wood and bring a bunch of tennis balls. And so, so part of it is, you know, obviously if we need to bring that stuff that I would hope they're going to let us know or tell us how to figure out, like talk to people, but, but yeah, otherwise, you know, a good solid rock is, is going to be needed a uh, good solid footwear, um, you know, water and fuel like the basics like that that you're going to need good you know i you know i think the biggest and i gotta honestly i still need to talk to people who who are experienced at the race to uh understand the gear factor a bit more but um those are the things that that you know i i gotta prepare for a little bit more and i said a little bit of an unknown for me but but yeah i think um you, you they pretty much will there's a standard set of things i shouldn't say standard but there's a set of things that are expected and we'll find out, you know, what, what you need to have in that ruck. And, uh, I got to make sure I got them and then we'll figure out how we're going to use them when we get there. Awesome. Uh, well, I want to switch gears a little bit, um, while I have you here and you've done a, a, a decent amount of, uh, expeditions at altitude, um, you know, Rockies and these Himalayas, which is pretty awesome. So I would love to kind of pick your brain a little bit on how you prepared for some of those when, uh, I'm assuming you don't have, you know, access to being at altitude where you are, um, unless you're doing, you know, any, uh, anything like that, but what kind of went into preparing for something like that when you know, you're going to be at such high altitudes? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the physical training, honestly, is not that different than what you would do for say you're training for, um, you know, an OCR, perhaps I definitely would recommend amp. I definitely amp up the miles in terms of, uh, elevation gain type of running, and hiking, uh, to prepare for that type of thing at sea level. So that, you know, where I live at sea level, um, mm -hmm. so that I'm, I'm prepared physically for that. So not all that different, but the, the biggest thing I say, you know, I always tell people when you go to altitude and I've learned through the hard way, right. I've, I've kind of, uh, you know, when I was younger, I, you know, I did trips, uh, I've been in to Nepal and India and the Himalaya and all over the Andes and, and done trips. And some of them have not gone as well because I've shown up at, at, um, high altitude and just kind of been like, man, I'm going to crush this thing. And, you know, don't I just, you know, yeah, we're going up, take, you know, going up, uh, going up small elevation game, maybe a thousand to 2000 feet per day, or even 3000 at most, but I'm doing it at a, I did it at a fast, hard pace, which is not smart. So the last couple of times I've gone to altitude, I've been much more successful coming from sea level with no specific training, right. At, at sea level to prepare for the altitude. Cause I don't have ways to do that. I don't own a hyperbaric chamber for instance, which, you know, is, is a good, good practice by the way, if you, if you can't get access to one to prepare. Um, but yeah, there's, um, uh, in terms of actual arrival on the ground is, is going very slow. And that's very frustrating for, uh, I think most athletes, who are, are, you know, hard charging and they're like, we really get to get out there. You're excited to be out there, especially at the beginning. And that can ruin your whole trip if you don't go slow. So it's a very it's forcibly slow pace, not just slow rates of elevation gain, but slow pace that I honestly have worked for me. And I know I've worked for others. And I, I take those practices from, from, you know, people, experienced people I've worked with or, or been over there with, and it's worked wonders, but otherwise, you know, things that I'm, I'm doing, it's just, you know, just good recovery, uh, making sure that my, you know, my, um, at, at sea level, uh, my, I'm keeping my insulin levels low, the glucose levels low, uh, to make sure my body, you know, decreasing that inflammation overall, right. Cause your body's going to react much better when you, when you put additional stress at altitude on it. If you're entering altitude at a lower, you know, inflammation or state of inflammation, right. Cause your body's going to increase stress, which will then increase inflammation overall, overall in your body. So there are things that you can do at, at sea level, right. To prepare. Uh, and yeah, you can, like I said, um, you can't increase the oxygen level of your, your, your blood, uh, legally at least. Um, 
very effectively at, at sea level uh, to necessarily adapt to the higher altitude, but there are a lot of other things that you can do um, to, to best prepare. But nothing beats actually just making sure you, you're showing up on the ground with the sound game plan for proper climatization. Nothing's going to beat that at all. And, and, uh, and that's basically what, what I've had success with in the past. Yeah, I mean, that all makes complete sense and I think is, is sound advice. And I think a, a lot of people probably make that mistake where it's, it's kind of weird because it's like this invisible um, thing that you're, you're fighting where it doesn't seem like it's any different. And then you go and you, if you treat it like it's any other day, um, it could be a quick end to your day if, if you're not careful with you know, altitude sickness or whatever it might be. So, um, but I, I agree, just if you can get there in a good state, you, you have a big advantage over somebody who's not been, you know, preparing for, for something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. And th there's lots of things, you know, people always ask me too, well, I'm doing a, you know, a, a race in, in Arizona and, um, you know, I don't live in desert hot climates and, you know, cause I live in a cold climate over here in the Boston area. And I'm like, there's lots of things you can do for instance, there at home and thinking through, you know, getting a sauna and, you know, infrared sauna and put all your clothes on and hop on the bike and cycle, right? So they'll simulate sort of a, a desert scene. But, you know, there's only so much that that you can do, but there are some practical things you can do based off of the the sort of environment that you're going to when it doesn't ma match the one that you're living in uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think it goes a lot, like sometimes we underestimate how adaptive the, the human body is if you allow it to be. And, you know, like a lot of the things you mentioned you're doing with um, whether it's sleep or uh, fasting, um, you know, hot, cold, the, the body can, you know, within reason, you know, the body can handle a lot of large variability of stress that's placed on it. But sometimes when we just stay too comfortable, right, when we have air conditioning always on or the heater always on, and we just want to be at that total comfort position, you're basically telling your body, we don't really need to live outside of this little bubble. And it's just not going to get very good at adapting. So it's just that idea, you know, I know the cliche of getting uncomfortable, but it, it is kind of uh, what we're looking for is you got to push the envelope a little bit uh, to allow the body to experience it and learn how to deal with it. Absolutely. There, there's lots that I think all of us can be doing, uh, simple things every day, right. That, that, you know, yeah, you, you gotta be a little bit uncomfortable, right. You gotta be able to not just do the, the hard workouts, uh, but also, you know, take a look at some other things, um, that really can help increase, decrease overall body inflammation, help with recovery. And I mentioned cold Genesis is a good example, right? Cold water. You look at around the, the world, the animals that, live the longest, right? Like the, the Greenland shark and the, these, the, these other animals that live at these deep cold temperatures have low heart rates, live long periods of time. Right. So, and that's not that by mistake, right. It's, and I'm not saying we all got to go jump and live in the Arctic and, you know, live like that, that animal, but cold water, right. Cold air, cold temperatures, there's a direct correlation to, uh, recovery. There's a lot of research out there where that actually aids recovery. And that's a level of discomfort for most people, right? And, you know, I've, I've worked with my athletes to say, turn the cold water in the shower, start with 20 seconds on, 10 seconds, 20 seconds cold, 10 seconds hot, or three minutes cold. And it's really, really discomforting, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's, and that's only a minor step, right? And these people who will stay in cold water for 45 minutes, right? So that's just one example. I mean, there's other things that I think we need to think outside the box as humans, uh, as you said, sitting in our nice heated house or, or, um, you know, and, and an AC type of room. Yeah. That stuff's nice, but you got to be uncomfortable, uh, in a smart way, right. To yeah. get some of the results that, that you're really looking for, uh, for, for overall recovery and, and not to mention, you know, overall wellness. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Like you brought up the fasting, I think same thing, like, you know, I'm not saying everybody needs to go fast and I know a lot of people really, that's how they, they eat. Um, but you, sh if you can't go like a day without eating, um, sure. I'm, you're going to have a little bit of hunger, but if you're like dying, you know, where you're lightheaded and mood changes and, and your body basically rebelling from that, it's a sign that you, your body just can't adapt. You know, we, we, if we can live, you know, a month without eating food and you can't make it 24 hours, that's, it's telling you something that th there's a problem yeah. with your body dealing with that amount of stress. Absolutely. It's, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's, 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 you know, we think about how our ancestors lived, right. And it's ancestral living and they, they, out of necessity, were, were cold out of necessity, 
um, uh, were, were hungry, right? Mm-hmm. So they, mm-hmm. they fasted and then they, they had their bodies adapted, they adapted their schedule. So it's that type of thing. And, and I'm, you know, fasting is a, yeah, another great example. And I try to do that every day. I fast for at least 16 hours a day and I'm going to be doing next week, a 48 hour protocol, 48 hours on and 12 hour feed window. And again, all that's to force my body to adapt, not just for the death race, but I think it's, it's also just overall wellness and health, the benefits that I see, right. And how I feel after more mentally clear, uh, I know inflammation, in my body's going down, right. My, my, uh, insulin levels go down. Um, so all my biomarkers, my heart rate variability, um, heart rate, all these, my weight, all these things get go, go trend in a very positive direction. And, and am I uncomfortable? Sure. But at the same time, um, you, you kind of want, especially once you get past that first, say like 12 to 24 hour window, it's, it's, it's much easier. Right. And it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's easier and, um, it's not for everyone. And of course, everyone needs to, you need to always talk to your doctor, but, but I do think, um, fasting is another good example of a way to, to kind of fall into that category of being uncomfortable and get used to being uncomfortable to really push, uh, your, your overall fitness. Absolutely. Well, I, I've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate all of the information you provided to help me out, to help our listeners out. If, if, if anyone has questions or just wants to, to follow you, learn more about you, where would be a good place to check out? Yeah, definitely. You can go to uh, uh, crossfithighpower.com and uh, check out our, our site there. And I also run uh, Ascend Sports Conditioning and go to ascendsportsconditioning.com. And uh, yeah, anyone feel free to reach out to me if you have any additional questions. Always happy to chat. Um, and I'll, uh, you know, you can pass my contact information along as well. All right, awesome. I will put it all in the show notes for this episode. Uh, Gary, thanks again. Uh, great talking with you, and and thank you so much for sharing everything. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mike, and thanks for having me. All right, well, that's going to do it for episode seventy nine of the OCR Underground Show. As always, thanks for joining. I hope you found some good tips and strategies that you can use in your OCR training after listening to this show. Uh, remember to check out the show notes at www.ocrunderground.com episode 79 for any links or anything we mentioned in the show. I'll make sure to put some links there to make it easy for you to find. And uh, also a big thanks to our guest, Coach Gary Lombardo, and for him sharing his strategies, as well as the sponsors of the show, Uh, Make sure you check out Venga CBD and Fitbar for some of their awesome products. Well, that's it for this time. Uh, We'll be back soon with another episode. And until then, keep training smarter.